Life really boils down to this one question. Is, is God being worshipped in and through my life, or is something or someone else? And really, that's what life comes down to. You see, all of us in here, we, we worship. And so the question is, who or what are we worshiping? And so every day, the threat of idolatry, which is worshiping other gods other than the one true God, there's the threat every day coming at us in many different ways, in many different forms, to pursue other little g-gods or, or other idols. Um, and worship looks like this. It's, it's what we give our time to. It's, it's what we value. It's what we give worth to. And we show that by what we give our time to, how we spend our money, uh, you, you name it. And, and if you think about it, we, we all battle with that. And, and the war is, is real. And, and so God doesn't want our, our life to be a life of, uh, of feasting on idols, but instead that our life would truly be one that seeks to worship the one true God and give glory to him alone. And so you heard in this text, verse 31 this morning, and I just want to draw your attention to that because that's really the overarching theme of what Paul is going to say. And he's going to bring up some things, and you're going to hear some things today that, that maybe don't seem relevant necessarily to, to our context, but they are very much so. Uh, but the overarching thing this morning is really verse 31, where it says, whether you eat or whether you drink, give what? All glory to God. Do it all for the glory of God. And that's what our, God wants our lives to be about. And so he's going to address this this morning in a few different ways. And I'll give you some context so you kind of understand what's he, what, what is Paul talking about? Why is he saying these things to the church at Corinth? And what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me where I'm at here in 2020? And so look at the text. We're going to dive into it this morning, walk verse by verse. And really what Paul is going to deal with is the glory of God and how every day I've got to think about, is my life, am I living my life for the glory of God? So it deals with my, my personal holiness, um, but then it also deals with how I treat and love other people, and, and, and how I put the interest of others before my own so that they ultimately would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's what Paul's life was all about, and it was all for the glory of God. So look what he says in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from the, the worship of false gods Flee from the worship of, of anyone or someone or anything other than the one true God. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from it. Flee from idolatry. And so that word therefore, when you have a therefore, you've got to ask, what is that therefore, therefore, right? And so what it causes us to do when we study Scripture is to look and see what was said before. And, and I think right here in this verse, what it's causing us to do is really look at the beginning of chapter 10 down from verse 1 to verse 13. If you remember two weeks ago, 
We talked about this as, as Paul was, was going back to the mistakes and the sins of the, the people of Israel and how they committed idolatry, they committed sexual morality, they were testing God. They were basically saying, God, I know you said this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'll just see what you're going to do. Are you going to discipline me? Um, and, and they would test God. They, they would tax his patience. And then they would also grumble right? God would bless them with manna. God would bless them with water from a rock. And, and they would basically say, I don't really like that. You know, they would just grumble, but yet they didn't have anything other than that. And, and they would grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble throughout the wilderness. And, and so Paul brings up these examples. He brings up these examples and, and encourages the, the church in, in Corinth not to act like they did but instead to take the instruction in verse 11 and to see it as something that God has given for us, the Word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for us to, to live in a way where we don't make the mistakes of those before us, but that instead we would live a life that honors and glorifies God. And he also says in verse 12 and verse 13 also that as you get tempted, right, you don't have to fall into temptation. You can flee it because God, by his grace, has given us an escape to where we can endure and live faithfully. God has done that for us. So in light of all of that, Paul says, therefore, flee idolatry. Flee it. Um, don't seek after other gods. Don't live for the idols of this world. Exodus 20, verse 3, God told Moses to speak to the Israelites and tell them. He gave them a list of ten commandments, and he tells them, You shall have no other gods before me. As followers of Christ, there should be no other idols, no other gods before the one true God. Now, Paul was sharing this because the Corinthians were dealing with a struggle. They had a few struggles, but one of them in particular was this idea is that they were going to these pagan celebrations, these pagan feasts with pagans, and they didn't see a problem with it. And so Paul, ever since chapter 8, has been addressing this issue and saying, this is not right. This is not right for you to go there. And the reason is, is because of idolatry, because these gatherings are really a worship of other gods of other gods. Now, back in the 1990s and early 2000s, um, I spent a great amount of time in, in Mexico, and my wife and I, when we got married, we've, we've done some trips there too, and, and when, we, when I would go there, I, I remember seeing, um, especially the first time back in the 90s, when I would drive down the road, especially in places like Mexico City, there would be these roadside altars, and they would have statues of saints, and, and people, even at, there on the side of the road, could go and pray to the saints and, and worship. And, and I would often think this. I really would. And, and I've done this in other places, like in India, too, where there's idols and, and stuff on the side of the road where people are worshiping. And I, when I think this to myself, I, I'm glad I'm not like those people and, and not worshiping these roadside altars and these praying to these saints there. I, I, I would think that. I would think that. But this week, I was reminded of those and, and, and that thinking, and I was reminded, but I am like those people. I am like those people. My idols aren't the dark idols 
a formal religion that is even on the side of the road or wherever it may be, but it's the subtle idols of my everyday world. There are things that claim the place in my heart that only God should have. And they're sickening to the Lord, just as those roadside altars are and those places of worship of other gods are. You see, I have a worship war that takes place in my heart every day, every day. And really, we all do. You see, worship is not something we do only in this formal setting once a week on a Sunday morning. You see, God designed us all to be worshipers. Everything we do is a product of worship. We're giving our hearts to something, and if it is not to God, it is something or someone that God has created. And all of this takes place in the little moments of our lives. That's why the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, little children, he's speaking to the church, he said, guard yourselves from idols. What's that mean? He, he's saying this, be watchful. Watch over your heart. Watch over your soul that you're, you're not al- allowing yourself to be drawn into the worship of other things or, or someone else instead of the one true God. So be careful about your choices. Be careful about what you do. Be careful about how you spend your time. Be careful what you put value to. Be careful how you spend your money. And the list goes on and on. Be careful Because guess what? Life is about worship. And everything you do is an act of worship. And so Paul is saying here, flee idolatry. Flee the worship of anything else other than the one true God. And so he moves to verse 15, and he wants us to take this serious because look what he says. He says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. And so he says to the Corinthians, hey, listen, you guys are wise. Judge judge what I'm saying here. And so really what he's saying is, church at Corinth, be wise in your thinking. Be thoughtful about the choices you make. Be, Be thoughtful about what you do day to day. And so he's going to move forward here in verse 16, verse 17 and on. And he says, okay, so in the things I'm about to, to share with you, I want you to be thoughtful about it. I want you to be wise about these things. And so look at verse 16. Listen to what he says. He's going to ask questions from 16, 17, and 18, and then drive home a point really down in verse 19 and 20. And so listen to what he says in verse 16. As he asks these rhetorical questions, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And then verse 17, since there is one bread or one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You might be saying, Paul, what are you talking about? These verses um, would require more than just, I think, one reading for the sake of understanding, multiple readings. Okay, Paul, what are you talking about? And Paul here is talking about the Lord's Supper, where the church remembers the blood of Christ by taking the cup and drinking, where we remember the body of Christ by taking the bread and eating. And Paul is going to mention this in chapter 11. In fact, let me read this to you. In verse 24 through 26, Paul is going to go back to the night before Jesus' death, the night of his betrayal. And you remember when he was with the disciples, 
and he said these words to them, and listen to what he says. As he had given thanks, he broke the bread in verse 24, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is an ordinance of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are these two ordinances that God has given to the church. That um, they're, they're witnesses to the world. They're, they're witnesses to each other. They're things that we participate in, we, we share in together. And specifically, he's mentioning the Lord's Supper. And he says here, we, we bless the cup. What, what does that mean, Paul? We, we bless the cup. Um, we bless it. We are thankful for it because of what it symbolizes and what we remember as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we drink the cup. We remember what it symbolizes. And Paul says here, it symbolizes a sharing. He uses that word sharing in the benefits of Christ's shed blood. And that's what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper. We remember that Christ shed his blood. And what's the benefits of Christ's shed blood? Well, Ephesians 1, 7 tells us this. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. This idea of redemption. We're slaves to sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ has bought our freedom, has set us free from the slavery to sin, and now we've been redeemed through his blood. His death was the purchase. His blood was the price. And so now we have the forgiveness of of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Meaning, I didn't do anything to deserve this or to get out of the predicament of slavery to my sin, but he did it all, and he paid it all to set me free. And so when we come to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper, as we take the cup, we remember that. We remember and we're thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ as we partake and drink of the cup. But not only of the cup... He speaks of the body of Christ as well in verse 16. And so what does the, the body of Christ symbolize for us or the taking of the bread? It, it, we're sharing in the benefits of Christ's body. And what is that? What does that mean? In the Bible, it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, 24, Paul says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, here's the reason, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Jesus carried our sins to the cross as he went to the cross, and he died on the cross for us. He became a substitute for us, paying the price, taking our place, paying the price and the penalty that we deserve, which is death, which is the wrath of God, and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, so that we would not have to pay that price. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So that if we would believe in Christ, we could have a relationship with God, where once we were separated from him, but because of Christ. Bearing our sin on the cross and paying the penalty for it, we now can be made right with God. And so Paul says, 
This is the blessing of the cup. This is the blessing of the bread. This is why we share this together. We're remembering together the benefits of Christ's blood, of Christ's body. And so that word sharing there is significant. Look at it there in verse 16. We bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Not only that, we, we uh, break a sharing in the body of Christ. This idea of sharing is participation or, or fellowship. Not only that, it's the idea of communion. So if you've ever wondered why, why do they call the Lord's Supper sometime this time of communion, it, it's because of this very word right here. And so we as a body, the church, are sharing together in the remembrance of what Christ has done for us through his blood and body. And in verse 17, Paul says, since there's one loaf or one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, it's interesting here. When he says one bread, he's literally meaning one loaf of bread, right? And here's why Paul is saying that. It's because the New Testament, when they would come and gather for the Lord's Supper, as we see like in places in Acts 2 and on, what they would do is they literally would just have one loaf of bread. And what Paul is saying here is this, is when we come to share that time together with, with this one loaf and, and, and the cup, what we're doing is, is this is a, a, an act of solidarity. This is an act of unity. This is an act of oneness that we're all saying together as the people of God, this is what Christ has done for me. This is what Christ has done for us as the community of Jesus Christ, as the church of Christ. And so there's this act of solidarity, of, of unity when we come to do this as the redeemed community of Jesus Christ. And so it also has this element of unity. And Paul says, this is the significance of the Lord's Supper. This is the significance of communion that you share together. Now he says in verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altars? And Paul's using another example of a meal and a sharing of sacrifices. And so he's saying Christians who eat the Lord's Supper express their solidarity and their commitment with one another and with Christ, just as the Jews did back in the Old Testament. So he's going back to that example again of the physical nation of Israel. So what point is Paul making? His point is that Christians should therefore not attend pagan feasts. And you might be saying, Paul, why are, why are you taking the long route, right, to, to get to this prohibition against these feasts, these celebrations? Why are you doing this? Because he wants them to understand what's at stake here. He wants them to understand that, that what they're doing from the Lord's Supper to attending these pagan feasts, that they need to understand why they're doing it, that the thoughtfulness behind it. They need to think. They need to be wise about what they're doing. And so when they're going to these pagan feasts, they're eating this meat that are offered to pagan gods. It's part of pagan worship because it expresses one solidarity, one commitment to pagans and to their pagan gods. And so he's saying, don't go to these feasts. Don't go. And then in verse 19, he asks this question, what do I mean here? What do I mean then? And he says that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. See, Paul knows that some of the Corinthians are thinking, hey, Paul, you've said before that an idol or a little g god is nothing. They have no existence. They, they, they're, they're nothing. And Paul says, yes, that, that's right. 
but he wants them to know something. And here's where Paul starts to shift. And he says here, I want you to know that there's power behind those idols. There's power behind those little g-gods. There's power. And so verse 20, he says, no. No, you're right. Idols are nothing. Little g-gods are nothing, right? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice, and here's the kicker, to demons. So yes, idols are nothing. Little g-gods are nothing. But I want you to know what's behind this. There's power behind this, and it's demons. And not to God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. So Paul says, I'm not throwing down legalism. Paul says, I'm not just prohibiting you to do something, but I want you to know the seriousness of this. When you go to these pagan feasts and these gatherings and stuff like that, I I want you to know there's something behind it, and it's the work of demons. It's not the work of God. So the power behind pagan religion and any other idol or God is demonic. It's of the enemy. It's of Satan. And so for the Corinthians attending these feasts, Paul is saying those who participate in these pagan feasts are expressing a solidarity and demonic, uh, with demonic powers, which is, which is literally the worship of demons. So see what Paul is, is doing here? He's saying, hey, listen, when we go to the Lord's Supper, we have this solidarity with, with Christ. But, but it's the same thing. You go to these pagan feasts, you're having these solidarity and this unity, and you're sharing in the worship of demons. And so Paul says, everything in life deals with the worship of something. Either the one true God, or another idol, or another little g-god. And so Paul, what are you saying here? What's the point? Look at verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying it's inconsistent for a follower of Christ to partake in both. And this is what the Corinthians were definitely doing. And as a result, they were doing two things when it came to partaking in the Lord's Supper. They were overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper, and they were also underestimating the purpose of the Lord's Supper. They were overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper by thinking that if they just ate this food and they just drank this drink, God would be pleased with them and they would be safe from his judgment. Even if they went on participating in these idle feasts of their Corinthian friends, they'd be okay. But this is pretty frightening. This is basically saying, hey, listen, I, I can you know, have this Christian faith and this Christian life, but, but hey, I, I can do this on Sunday and, and, and maybe a Wednesday night or whatever, but the rest of the time, I, man, I'm going to live the, the way the, the rest of the world does. And I'm going to come on Sunday and just treat God and go through the motions, through the songs, and through communion like God's some grace dispenser, right? And I'm going to treat everything I do in these religious gatherings on Sunday or whatever, and, and, and I'm going to treat that as kind of like God protecting me and give, giving me safety, but the rest of the week I'm just going to do what I want. Just going to do what I want. And Paul's like, wait, time out for a second. 
Corinthian church, you, you can't do that. That's, that's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. You're, you're totally, totally overestimating the power of the Lord's Supper and, and treating it wrongly. It's not that you come and eat of the bread and take of the drink, and it's not like you're getting you know, this, this shot that's immunizing you from the sin that you're going to go commit during the week. It's not the purpose, Paul says. So what they were doing is they were substituting the sacrament for personal holiness. Here's the deal. A lot of people do this. A lot of people think like this. I'm going to come get my fix of Jesus, right? And then I'm going to live like the rest of the world during the rest of the week, entangled in secularism and sin. But I'm going to come back the next Sunday and get my Jesus fix again. Paul says, no, that's not, that's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. That's not the purpose of the Christian life. It's not it. And so the Corinthians not only overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper, but they underestimated the Lord's Supper purpose. You see, they underestimated the real power of the Lord's Supper that comes from its true purpose. Namely, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's to deepen and strengthen our participation in the benefits of the cross, to, to nourish our fellowship with Jesus himself. And so the, the reason this is powerful, the time of the Lord's Supper, is because it, it's powerful against idolatry. It is powerful against idolatry. Because look at verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You, you can't. And so because when you truly partake of the cup and the table of the Lord, you're being nourished, you're being satisfied by the Lord and loving the Lord, delighting in the Lord, you're trusting in the Lord, you're fellowshipping with the Lord as you remember everything that Christ has done for you. And so that's what it means to share in the blood and the body of Christ, to sit with Jesus at the banquet of the benefits of his death. And in that kind of experience, guess what happens? Idols and demons lose all their attraction and all their power. And so here's the deal. What does it mean for us then to come every week and to remember together the Lord's table? I think what it means is the Lord's table is really about what you do when you're not at the Lord's table. It's about the threat of idolatry in our life every day. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper to remember what Christ has done, the benefits we have because of his great sacrifice on the cross, we have fellowship with him. And we lose our desire for other gods. So we do not feast on idols during the rest of the week. Paul wanted them to understand that purpose. So verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Meaning, or are we going gonna to put a, a stiff arm up to this? Say, Paul, I'm not going to accept your teaching. And he says, when we do that, we're provoking God to jealousy. And then he says, we're not stronger than he, are we? Basically what we're saying here is when we treat God like this, what we're saying is, God, I know better than you. I'm powerful than you are. And Paul says, no, no. 
I love Paul's use here in verse 22. He says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? One of the things that we see throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is that God is a jealous God. So when we hear that, sometimes we think, what? God's a jealous God. Here's why. God knows that you and I were created for one thing. We were created to worship him. And he knew in that that we would find the greatest joy, that we would find the greatest satisfaction. That's why in in John 10.10, when Jesus says, I've come to give life and to give it abundantly, he's come to give us life, eternal life, a life where we know God and have a relationship with him, and we know the meaning and the purpose of life is to live for him. And in that, he says, you have abundant life. In those things, you have abundant life. And so Paul's saying here, but God is a jealous God. Why? Because he wants us to worship him, because he knows that that is the best for us. It's loving a very loving thing for God to want us to worship him. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my glory to another. You see, God is passionate about his glory. And Jesus died so that we would be passionate about the glory of God, just like God is. That's why he died. And that's what love looks like. That's what the love of God looks like. It's God saying to us, hey, listen, I don't want you to miss out on living a life in making much of me, God says. I don't want you to miss out on it. That's life. Don't don't spend your life just just playing with the idols and and the little g-gods of this this world and thinking that they're going to satisfy and give you everything you need and and give you hope. Because at the end of the day, they won't. They will leave you in a place right where the enemy, enemy wants you. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. And his whole goal with idols and other little g-gods that try to draw us away and distract us from a life lived in worship of God, their whole goal is to wreck our life, where at the end of the day, we're not left with hope. We're not left with meaning. We're not left with life. We're left with nothing. And God says, I want you to experience life. And a life lived for the glory of God, that is true living. That's why God is a jealous God. But Paul says here, don't, don't provoke that. Don't provoke that in, in thinking that you can live this life where you have, you know, you show up on Sunday and do your Jesus thing, get your fix, but then the rest of the week you live the way you want to. That's not what Christ has died for us for. And then he says this, and I want to wrap up on this, and I'm going to go quick on this part. We've got a few minutes, but listen to what it says here. He transitions here with this idea of that the, the glory of God is about our personal holiness, but it also includes how we deal with other people. How we treat other people is a big deal to God. And if you were to sum up God's commandments, is to love God and do what? Love others to love our neighbors. And so look what he says here in verse 23. All things are lawful, 
but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And so here's what Paul does. He says, I'm going to lay this principle out for you. Where to think about things that may be right, or to think about things that maybe are, are, are lawful for us to do, and we've got to ask this question about those things. Okay? So here's what Paul is saying. Going to pagan feasts and pagan celebrations, that is, is, is a no. Don't go. That, that is a very much an essential, Paul says, because you will be led into idolatry. And so he said what? Flee it. So it's prohibited. Don't do that. But there are going to be other things in life that, that may be right and may be lawful for you to do. But you've got to ask these questions. Because even though it's right and maybe lawful for me to do, is it good for me to do? Is it good for the sake of others if I do those things? And so look at what he, he's basically saying here. Is this thing profitable? Meaning, is it beneficial to others? Will it help them? Is it edifying? Meaning, will it encourage others? Will it build another up? Will it promote growth to others? Will it promote godly wisdom? Will it promote grace? Will it promote holiness? And so what he's saying here is, is throughout the day, I'm going to have choices. I'm going to have choices to commit idolatry or flee it. And he's already dealt with that. But I'm also going to have choices during the day where I can either choose my interest over the interest of others, or I can put the interest of others before my own. You remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse, verse 4, Paul tells us to put the interest of others before our own for Christ's sake. And that's what Christ did in coming from heaven to earth. He put the interest of us above his, his own glory, and he willingly laid it to the side. And he laid his life down for us. And so Paul says here, we need to think about situations in life like that. And so he gives this principle, but then he gives the scenario. And listen to the scenario real quick. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all in it, uh, in, in all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go and eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if someone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, he says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give Thanks. You might think about this like, Paul, can you be a little clear on this, right? Paul, what are you saying? Again, one read of this um, will, not, I, I believe, give you full understanding. You've got to read it quite a bit. Um, we might think that in such a situation, Paul would um, have advocated, advocated uh, exercising Christian liberty here, that, that one would have the right to eat this meat, but he didn't, right? He actually says here that in verse 26, if someone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idol, do not eat it for the sake of one who informs you. Um, he advocated abstaining right here in this particular case. 
Not because such meat was out of bounds for believers, right? He wasn't saying, because he said in verse 24 and 25, that you couldn't eat the meat. But what's the difference here? Someone said that this was sacrifice to idols. So someone mentioned that. I'll give some clarity to this in a second. See, it was not out of bounds for Christians to eat such meat. In fact, he advocated abstaining for this reason, for the sake of the pagan's moral conscience, for the sake of the unbeliever who mentioned to him, hey, listen, this meat is sacrifice to idols. And so specifically, if the Christian ate the meat, the pagan or the unbeliever might include this, that his guest was doing something Christians should not do. And he would be wrong, of course, yet Paul advocated not to violate the pagan or the unbeliever's understanding of what Christians should or should not do, rather than instructing him about Christian freedom at the table. And so here's what might this look like, and I'm just going to give you an example, and, and, and this example is going to fall short probably in some ways, but say you're invited to someone's house, and they're an unbeliever, okay? And let's say they make some sauce, I don't know, this, this sauce is maybe something you're going to dip something into. Maybe it's a fondue. I don't know, all right? But it's something, it's a sauce. And, and, and this sauce, okay, has some alcohol in it, okay? I don't know what sauce would have in it. Maybe some brandy. I don't know what you, you sauce up sauce with or whatever, okay? Go with me here. <laughs> but you have this sauce, okay? And... You're sitting there in the kitchen, and, and you notice that this sauce uh, is being sauced up, okay, with whatever, again, whatever it is. Um, and you sit down at the table, and you're enjoying this meal, and, and nothing's said, and everybody's sharing and partaking in the sauce, and the sauce, surely, it's not going to get you drunk or anything like that, and probably all of the alcohol has been cooked out of it and everything like that. And, and, and what, so what do you do? And I think what Paul is advocating here is saying, hey, Eat the sauce. Eat the sauce. But I think on the other hand, if you're in the kitchen, you're hanging out, right? And maybe there's someone there, and someone might say in the crowd today, well, this is a little stretch, Jerry, but okay. But someone's there, and he says, listen, there, there's alcohol in that sauce. And, and maybe you know the background of that person, this unbeliever. Maybe, maybe they've struggled with alcoholism in their life, and and, and maybe they're sitting at the table with you, and, and they, they want to abstain from it or whatever. And, and maybe there in that time, you need to abstain from it. And you might be thinking, well, gosh, that seems a little petty and a little picky. But here's what Paul's doing in this moment, all right? And I told you the example falls short a little bit, but here's what Paul is doing in this moment. He is saying, all right, this is not an issue of sinning and not sinning. This is an issue of loving somebody. And, and there are times in life where we're going to be in those situations where it's not a sin or not sin issue. It, it really is the interest of another versus my own desires. And there may be times where we need to abstain from something. And there may be other times where we're free and we don't have to abstain from something. But what Paul is saying here is be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. For what reason? To love your neighbor. And then Paul says this in, in verse 31. He says, so then, whether you eat 
or whatever you do, whether you, you drink, do it all for the glory of God. So that's the overarching theme. And within that, he wants us to think about others, to care for others, and specifically in this case, to love unbelievers and not to throw out legalism. Because here's what legalism does, especially in a scenario or a circumstance that I just gave an example of, is legalism can put up a wall just like that, just like that, and a barrier. And Paul says here in verse 32, he says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but listen to what he says here, the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Paul says, I want you to be thoughtful. There may be times where you've got to abstain from certain things. There may be times where you have the freedom not to. Paul says, I want you to be thoughtful and remember that your mission, <laughs> even around a dinner table, is that you would see others come to know Jesus, that they would be saved. Paul says, watch your life. Watch your soul, that you would flee idolatry and make your life about the glory of God. And as you engage with other people, love them. Put the interest of others before your own. And that may look like different things in different situations. And through it all, continually to strive after holiness for the glory of God but your goal is that you want to see people saved. See, that was Paul's life. That's why he says at the beginning of chapter 11, in verse 1, imitate me. Be imitators of me, just as I imitate Christ. This is how Paul lived. And Paul really is inviting us to do the same, to follow his example. So here's what he wants us to remember as John comes up and as we get ready for a time of communion. He wants us to remember that we belong to Jesus alone. I think he wants us to let the Lord's Supper cause us to remember that, that Jesus alone died for us. That he bled and he suffered for us. He wants us to remember the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. He wants us to remember how we've been blessed. So every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember that. He also wants us to remember and to be encouraged that as we leave here today, that the idols, the little g-gods that try to distract us from worshiping God, that try to pull us away from living for Him, for His glory alone, he wants us to remember that they are nothing, but that if we are enticed to give in to them, what's behind that is demons. And so really what's on the line is worship. And so he wants us to remember that today, that, that our life this week is about worshiping Christ and him alone. And as we engage people, that we remember to love them, to care for them, that they would be saved. And so whatever we can do, to edify them, to encourage them, that we would do that for the glory of God. And so let our life not be a feast of idols,
but a life lived for the glory of God, for that's what Christ died for. Let's pray.